Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. We are still awaiting Fed Chairman Jay Powell, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, the House Financial Services Committee talking about the need for more stimulus to get a preview we welcome Nathan Dean, Senior Government Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Nathan, thanks so much for joining us here. I mean, what can Mr. Mnuchin and Mr. Powell, what do you think the committee's really going to focus on with these two uh, folks? Well, there's really three things. I, I think that the we're going to see come out from the hearing. You know, I think you're going to see the Democrats really stress the need for municipality relief. Uh, and individual relief. Uh, and then on the Republican side, I think you're going to see questions about utilizing unsa- or unspent money from previous CARE Act. Uh, and what what investors should really note is that you're probably not going to get any answer or any clarity in terms of what you're going to see going forward. I think the most important thing to look in today's hearing is to see if you get a signal from Chairman Powell on whether or not the Fed, not Congress, is going to do anything to support the economy in the interim, because our take is, is that stimulus is pretty much dead for 2020, and that's going to have to be something that we're going to figure out in 2021. I mean, there is the suggestion that with everything the Fed did, and with the original CARES Act, it wasn't uh, maybe targeted in such a way that it might be extra efficient, right? So there's, there was plenty of money out there, but it doesn't mean that people are not suffering still. Is, is there going to be any mention of that? That's exactly right. So if you look at the Fed's two big programs, you get the municipal liquidity facility for municipalities. I think Chairman Powell can actually do some defense there. I think he can say that, you know, he's shored up uh, some of the municipality market. Where he's going to struggle, I think, is going to be on the Main Street lending facility. So where, where do small businesses get their, their funds? You know, PPP is gone, and so small businesses are continuing to struggle. And so I think you're going to get some questions on it. We'll see what, what if he actually comes out and says anything about how that's going to work. My guess is probably not. He's just going to throw it back onto Congress and say, if you want to support small businesses, we need to have another stimulus deal. And then, you know, just unfortunately because of the election and the SCOTUS fight, you know, that deal is probably not going to happen this year. It's interesting, Nathan. You know, I would suggest the vast majority of experts we've spoken to over the last three months pretty much all said we will get some fiscal stimulus before the election. What went wrong here? So I was one of those. Uh, I actually had, uh, you know, my 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 deal was uh, three to five hundred billion for municipalities before the election. And unfortunately, what happened is it just took too much time to negotiate and we got into a uh, too close to the election. If you're on the Democratic side now and not even in taking into account what's happening with the Supreme Court, if you're on the Democratic side, the last thing you want to do is interject a boost into the economy one month before the election. If you're on the Republican side, well, the last thing you want to do is support a $3 trillion bill or a $1.5 trillion bill when you have things like job numbers increasing and anecdotal stories about the economy coming back. And so we just got to a point where they ran out of time. Uh, both sides are going to go to the election. They think it's both politically uh, advantageous, advantageous for them to uh, not negotiate. And so we're going to have to see what happens in 2021 after the election. 
Yeah, I mean, by then, will there have been irreversible damage done? You know, there are still millions and millions of people in the United States unemployed, and this hopscotch kind of virus could strike anywhere soon again. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that, uh, you know, it's a lot of people want this stimulus to happen. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens in the lame duck. Uh, there's always this possibility, and I, uh, I'm making an out-of-consensus call right now where I think there's a small chance that you could see a very skinny bill in the lame duck period. I'm thinking airlines because there's plenty of bipartisan support for giving airlines additional relief. So th- there's still this desire and there's still this acknowledgement that they need to get something done, but we need to get the election out of the way. We need to get the Supreme Court fight out of the way. Uh, we need to find out who our next president is going to be. And when we get all of that, we'll be able to come together in 2021 and hopefully hammer out a, a phase four stimulus deal. Nathan, you spent obviously a lot of time looking at this whole DC functionality here or dysfunctionality. Talk to us about what a lame duck period is and what types of legislation can or cannot get done during that time between November uh, and January? So the lame duck period is obviously after the election, but before the new Congress comes in. And so if you've lost your seat, you know, you're only going to be around for a few more weeks. And that, does, that gives you an incentive to maybe vote for something that you wouldn't otherwise vote it for. Now, there's really two types of lame ducks. There's one where they just try and do a ton of stuff because they recognize it's not going to happen when a new president or a new Congress takes over. And then you have lame ducks where they just say, you know what, we're just tired, we're just going to go home. Odds favor that in this lame duck, they're just going to say, we're tired, we're going to go home, and we'll figure it out in the next election. But because, like you said, Bonnie, there is so much, so many people that are looking for help right now, you know, there is this possibility that they could come together and say, right, we're going to figure out something to do, just a band-aid patchwork deal, put it out there. You know, government shuts down in eight days, and so they have to actually finalize a stopgap funding bill. Mm. Maybe that goes into the lame duck period. And so we're not done yet in terms of things that Congress have to pass. Uh, So, you know, again, the odds favor that nothing happens. But uh, if I'm an investor in specific type of industries, there's certainly I'm going to keep my eyes on it because there is still a chance. That's, you know, a good point, Nathan. Industry is very good at getting this president's ear and this administration's ear. And certainly restaurants have been trying to do that for several months. And you mentioned the airlines. It's almost surprising that some of these industries haven't been able to eke something you know, out of the president, whether it be by executive order or some other way. Is there a chance that something like that happens in the next few weeks? You know, in terms of executive order, yes. Um, executive orders are limited, though. We saw that with President Trump's executive order on providing relief. Uh, you know, certain states embraced it, other states didn't. And so consumers didn't get the same number of stimulus checks that they had gotten before. In terms of industry, though, you know, restaurants have a great case of why they're, you know, why they're being damaged, airlines, movie theaters, and they all have asks. And these asks are going to politicians that are sympathetic to them. What happens, though, is that they get interjected into this $3 billion debate, this $1.5 trillion debate. Normally, for the last two to three years, how these bills get passed is they get attached to either funding bills or must-pass pieces of legislation. And that's where the lobbyists and the policymakers do their, their dirty work, if you call it that. That really hasn't happened in this case. So I think if you get into the lame duck period and something does pass, you know, then, you know, you have this shot of being able to interject your, your industry specific legislation. If it doesn't, 
you know, and let's just say no matter who wins the election, we're going to have an extremely busy year next year because, remember, we also have the debt ceiling coming back in the first half of next year. We also have a lot more stimulus that we need to do. And whoever president wins, they're also going to try and interject their 100-day agenda. So lots of stuff's going to happen in the first half of next year. Well, Nathan, you know, you mentioned municipalities, states and municipalities. We had you know, Governor Cuomo from New York, Governor Newsom from California, you know, talking about huge budget holes in their fiscal year budgets that they need to fill. And they, you know, made the argument that they need help from the federal government to fill them. It looks like states and municipalities are going to come out, come up empty here. How much pain is that going to be? It's going to be bad. You know, so the Center of Budget and Public Policy Priorities put out an analysis that we we like um, that said that just taking out the local and county municipalities, just states plus the District of Columbia, from 2020 to 2022, you're looking at probably somewhere between 200 to 250 billion dollars in lost tax revenue. You know, that's just that's just lost tax revenue. That's not even taking into account increased costs or anything like that. You know, the Democrats had proposed giving about $875 billion in municipality relief across everything, so local and states and so forth. Republicans counter back with nothing other than unspent money from the CARES Act was probably about $100 billion. So, you know, we always thought this three to $500 billion number would be reasonable from both sides. It wouldn't solve anything. Municipalities are still going to be hurting for the next few years. You know, if you take into every single county, and I remember even the city of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, once said that if the Alabama football team didn't play this year, uh, they're going to lose $2 billion in tax revenue. How do you make that up? Uh, And so uh, municipalities are going to be in some pain, and I I think they'll continue to be in pain no matter what happens with Congress. Can't they just borrow and worry about it some other time? You know, that's a great, you know, it's one thing they can do, and it's one thing the Republicans have said. You know, uh, Chairman McHenry will probably make a statement in the committee today. I'm sorry, Ranking Member McHenry uh, from North Carolina. He's speaking now. Um, he will probably make a statement in which he says that, you know, listening to state governors and you know, so forth, talking about all the money they need is a waste of time. You know, rather than actually trying to get Congress to provide the money, they should go to the Fed. They should go. They should borrow money. They should take advantage of low rates, and they should try and make sure that the market, you know, brings their economy back up so that they can do it. Use this time to actually cut some of the fat from your uh, from your budgets. So the Republican argument is that you know the markets should be able to resolve this. We haven't seen thousands of policemen or firefighters being laid off yet. I mean, certainly that could happen, but. You know, for the Republican argument, the pain hasn't come to the municipalities yet. It's still just a theoretical idea. Nathan, what's the expectation in Washington of people you talk to about a scenario where former Vice President Biden does win the election, the Democrats do take control of the Senate? What's the expectation then? So it really, it really it has changed with the SCOTUS fight that we're having right now. Yep. Before this past weekend, you know, it was going to be, there was going to be pressure to do away with the filibuster. Um, but I think that, you know, unless the Democrats really take, so let's say, 53 or 54 seats, you weren't going to be able to do it. You still have holdouts like uh, Senator Sinema from Arizona, Senator Manchin from West Virginia. They were against filibuster reform. Now this has changed. And so, you know, it really depends on the makeup of the Senate, uh, whether you're going to get a Biden presidency that would move forward with a lot of these grand changes or whether you're going to get a Biden presidency that's going to try and negotiate with Republicans. If you get a Democratic Senate that's probably north of 53 seats, then you're going to see, in my opinion, a more progressive Biden presidency. 
if it's somewhere closer to, let's say, 50-50, or even if the Democrats don't take the Senate, then you're going to get a much more moderate Biden presidency. When will we expect to see changes? Because, you know, there won't be an inauguration for a few months. And at that point, depending on the makeup of Congress, there may be still some barriers to anything that Biden wants to do. What would be in his first 100 days when it comes to the economy? So, you know, Congress doesn't, or Washington doesn't move fast. <laughs> and so most politicians, or sorry, most presidents try to get everything done within the first 100 days of their term because that's the momentum. Now, like I said before, there is a debt ceiling coming up. We also have to get a stimulus bill. Uh, let's say if Biden wins, he's going to want to do a stimulus bill. So that's going to take a lot of momentum away from things like uh, potentially judicial reform, police reform. You know, I'm a banks analyst. You know, banks are probably not high on his priority, but uh, so he's going to have to try and move fast. But the, on the flip side, if he's dealing with a Senate that still has a filibuster, well, you know, the Senate Republicans can effectively block a lot of what he can accomplish. So that's the question is, is, is he going to try and move fast or is he going to try and move slow? Uh, and I really think it depends on the makeup of the Senate. Uh, for things that rely on the Federal Reserve, for example, you know, Biden is not going to have much influence on the Federal Reserve. Chairman Powell is in his term until 2022. Vice Chairman Randall Quarles for banking and supervision is in his term until late 2021. So the financial regulatory team in place outside of the Treasury Secretary is going to be largely a leftover from the Trump administration. So it'll be really interesting to see if there's a difference of opinion between what you get from the White House and what you get from the Fed. My guess is that they're probably going to be more on the same page. Nathan, what's the feeling within Washington about the House of Representatives? Are the Democrats in uh, a meaningful risk of losing control of that House? No. So the Republicans need to net 20 seats to reach 218. And the last polling numbers that you can find on ElectGo suggest that uh, the Republicans would have to have a huge sweep uh, to reach that number. Most of the races right now are, are still on the Democratic side. So I don't think there's any expectation that the House can flip. Um, you know, what I tell clients all the time is when you look at the House, just note, this is where ideas get generated. You know, the ideas that eventually could become laws usually get generated in the House of Representatives. And in this case, you know, there are certain bills that, uh, you know, House Financial Services Chairwoman uh, Maxine Waters today will be discussing at the hearing with uh, Secretary Mnuchin and Chairman Powell on relief for manufacturers, restaurants, airlines. So these are good ideas that watch them because they could grow into something larger. Speaking of Elect Go, which is, by the way, a fantastic way of checking everything election related on your terminal, ELEC Go. Nathan, President Trump saying he's he's going to announce the U.S. Supreme Court nominee Saturday and Mitt Romney saying he would vote for a Supreme Court justice this year. Is it a done deal at this point? Well, nothing's a done deal in Washington until President Trump actually, you know, uh, until the vote actually occurs, nothing's a done deal. But uh, you know, the Democrats don't have much in the way of blocking this. Uh, you know, we've seen House Democrats float ideas like maybe we could have another impeachment. You know, that, that probably won't work. Uh, you know, so if they want to, if the Republicans want to hold a vote this year, they probably can. Uh, they probably can confirm this is uh, uh, not the quickest that a Supreme Court justice will have ever been confirmed. Uh, but, you know, what the Democrats do have is this threat of what happens if we win the presidency, we win the Senate, you know, do we stack the court? Do we do away with the filibuster? 
you know, that's the, the nuclear option, if you will. Uh, and so, you know, the responses that you've seen from Republicans publicly right now is that, you know, they, they're not sure the Democrats would ever move forward with that threat. So, you know, it's one of those things where there's nothing they can really do to stop them, but they can vow to make the situation much more, uh, I don't want to say worse, but much different in 2021 yes. if they so win. All right, Nathan Dean, wonderful stuff. Thank you so much. That is Nathan Dean, Senior Government Analyst. Our next guest, an investment banker and author who has written and focuses generally on the banking, mortgage finance, fintech sectors. Chris Whalen joins us. We're thrilled. He's chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, author of lots of books, included Inflated, How Money and Debt Built the American Dream and Forward Men from Inspiration to Enterprise. But today... Wouldn't mind starting off, Chris, on the idea that we're getting a little bit more of a glimpse into how money flows, specifically shady money flows around the world. And it's absolutely with the help of financial institutions, all the ones we know and some we don't. But 90 financial institutions appearing in leaked documents this week, including Deutsche and JP Morgan. Your thoughts? Well, wouldn't a dollar is to reserve currency, Vani? It's hard to keep the, the bad people out. Um, the U.S. government uses access to banking services and, and the U.S. dollar as a way of punishing uh, bad actors and states. And so banks have a very complex matrix they have to wade through to do business with foreigners, any foreigners. And a lot of them have just decided not to do it. Uh, many U.S. institutions will not do business with non-U.S. residents. So I think uh, it's not surprising. Uh, it's been a problem for a long time. And many of those banks that are listed there are, you know, providing services they think are okay. But in order to do diligence on these people and keep up with the lists of, you know, banned persons, for example, uh, requires a lot of focus and a lot of effort by banks. And they don't they don't do a very good job, do they? <laughs> so, you know, it's not surprising, is it? We've been reading about this for years. Mm. One more headwind for some of the big banks to deal with these days. I'm wondering, given where sure. interest rates are, how low they are, and how the Fed Chairman Powell suggested they will stay lower for much longer than maybe people initially anticipated, is there a bull case for buying these big money center banks? Well, we're still awaiting visibility, Paul, on credit. Um, you know, the banks have certainly put a lot of money aside for future losses, and I expect that's going to continue all year. I think at the end of the day, we'll probably put aside more reserves this year than we did in 2008, 2009. And the fourth quarter could be quite a mess in terms of taking assets to the curb and cleaning house. So, but to your question, is it time to buy them now? that they're down. Well, they're not really down very much. JP is still one and a quarter times book. Um, I just published a note on cities study, you know, well below book. And that's just a reflection of the returns they generate. Um, the higher risk shops like City, Capital One, Goldman uh, habitually trade below book because of lack of visibility on forward events, right? Especially idiosyncratic events from investment banking engagements, right? Which no one has visibility into. So, you know, for me, yeah, there's some banks out there that are great value. I've been buying mostly the preferreds when they've been selling off uh, because, you know, buying an eight or 9% coupon at par, which we've had an opportunity to do several times in the past year uh, is kind of nice. Low beta, 
you know, makes me happy. Uh, mm-hmm. I got out of most of the common. I had some U.S. Bank, but I just traded out of it because I, I think I can buy it again later on once we have a little more visibility on, on where the banks are going. Well, speaking of Citi, Chris, you've been negative on Citi for some time. Obviously, yeah. it's had a very troubled past. And in that note that you just referenced, you talk about the, the new leader, Jane Fraser, who's going to be replacing Michael Corbett in February of next year. And you say, you know, Corbett does leave behind a legacy of stability and rising equity values, but little change in terms of focus or a new business direction for the bank. Will Jane Fraser be able to find one? I I don't know. I think short term, no. And, And the reason, Bonnie, is that they traded away from their asset management business, selling that to Morgan Stanley and probably made sense at the time. But, you know, Mike Corbett had to make up for a shambles that had gone on really from when John Reed left the bank in 98 through the period of Sandy Weil and Bob Rubin and then Vikram Pandit. And the bank was really in in bad shape. So it's right now a two-legged stool. You have capital markets and you have essentially a subprime consumer business in the U.S. And then you have these little bits and pieces around the world. But you don't have a firm foundation for this bank in terms of core deposits or just the ability to... To, to make money in the same way that uh, J.P. Morgan does, right? They, they have a huge advantage because they're offshore. So their facilities cost is much less than other U.S. banks, but they still make less per dollar of assets. And to me, it's a business model issue, Vani. I'm actually working on my next book. Uh, it's a biography of a very prominent mortgage uh, executive. Uh, great story, and it's a non-bank story. Who's the mortgage executive? Do tell. Uh, I, I'm not going to say. I'm going to tease you a little bit. It hasn't <laughs> been announced yet, but it's, it's almost finished. And the neat thing about it is it's a non-bank perspective of the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s. And who was there? City. See, City got the non-bank ethos, the non-bank culture of lending on unsecured, no-doc mortgages, all of that came from the 90s and the, and the 80s. People forget this. So that same culture is in City. City's part finance company, part global bank. Um, but if you look at their funding costs, it's significantly higher than the other big banks. So they're at a disadvantage. I kind of put them in the same bucket as Goldman. They have some business model issues that just make investors uneasy, whereas they'll take a U.S. bank or Bank America or a J.P. Morgan because they think they have a better handle on it, right, in terms of the surprise risk right. factor. Hey, Chris, well, thanks now so I've much gone for... down that rabbit hole, so thanks, Chris. Yeah, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us here. I have a guess as to who this person is, and maybe Vonnie and I will chat about it later. I do have a guess. Chris Whalen, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, joining us. We appreciate his commentary, as always, giving us his thoughts on some of these global investment banks, the headwinds they are facing from business model issues to reputational risk, uh, just tremendous amounts of headwinds. But at some point, there has to be value. President Trump is set to make a speech uh, in which he is expected to assail China over the coronavirus to get a preview of what we might hear. Jordan Fabian, Bloomberg News White House correspondent joins us. So, Jordan, give us a preview of what you think President Trump is going, his main argument will be in front of the U.N. Yeah, you know, in fact, uh, the president actually just wrapped up his remarks just a few minutes ago. Uh, his speech was very brief, uh, just under 10 minutes, uh, unusual hmm. for uh, this kind of address. But he, yes, as you said, he assailed China over the spread of the coronavirus, blaming the Chinese government for letting it spread outside his borders and, and taking a, a victory lap of sorts for the U.S. response, even though 
uh, you know, by the numbers, the U.S. has the worst outbreak in the world. You know, at times the speech sounded uh, like one of his campaign rallies, and it did seem like it was really intended for a domestic audience coming just a few weeks before uh, Election Day in November. Yeah, I mean, what kind of response does he expect from the General Assembly itself or the individual countries? I mean, it's the United Nations and and China is very much a part of the United Nations. Yeah, of course. And you have uh, China and and other countries in Europe uh, pushing for a return to this multilateralist view of foreign policy, some more more cooperation between uh, the great powers of the world. uh, But by contrast, you heard President Trump you know, again, sort of do his go go it alone style and America first agenda, you know, talking about uh, how he forged peace agreements recently uh, between the UAE and Israel and says that more of those type of agreements are coming. Uh, those, of course, were not really done in, within the UN framework, but uh, it's something that the president you know, personally took some pride in. So, uh, you know, the president sort of, it's, again, setting himself apart and sending a message to the world that he's not going to be afraid to you know, rattle, uh, ruffle their feathers when it comes to sensitive issues of foreign policy. Jordan, what do most experts say was, in fact, the role of China in the coronavirus and the global spread? Was there anything policy-related? It was just simply lack of communication on the part of the Chinese authorities. What do we really know? Yeah, right. Right now, I think you know we don't we don't know a whole lot still about how the the origin. I mean, there's this speculation about this you know lab in Wuhan, but we still don't know the full story. And I, and I think that speaks to the, the criticism that we've heard, which is that you know China hasn't been as transparent as other countries might like about the origins and and also the outbreak in that country and how many uh, infections there actually are. Uh, you know, they've reported a no, low number. You know, the president has, has said that number is higher. Uh, you know, there's been some criticism of China for being slow to let in uh, officials from the World Health Organization and, and American officials along with them to, to come in in the early stages of the pandemic, monitor what was going on, and try to get a sense of how this virus was spreading. What about the idea that you know, the WHO has backed China as being transparent on, on this. And it does appear that international agencies are not flocking to the U.S. side of things on anything. They're very much trying to stay neutral or even allow China the benefit of the doubt. That's right. And uh, if I'm, yeah, there's been some real tensions between WHO and the U.S. And, you know, the president announced that he's planning to withdraw the U.S. from the WHO uh, something that would take place next year uh, if, if he is reelected, and so the, there have been some some real tensions there. But again, you know, this is this is something you know again that the president uh, seems to be doing for domestic political purposes. Uh, you know, his he ran on this agenda of you know, again the America first. Uh, we, the, we, the America knows the way forward, and, and critical of multilateral organizations like the United Nations. Uh, like the WHO. So uh, when he was looking for a scapegoat, when the outbreak in the U.S. got very bad, you know, he turned his sights to the ch- to China and the WHO and has been harping on those themes ever since. Can I just point out that China's Xi Jinping is actually now delivering a recorded speech to the U.N. Assembly. So it will be interesting to see if there's any kind of response <laughs> to what the president might have said or what kind of message she will will deliver. 
Right now, uh, Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Jordan Fabian, uh, White House correspondent for Bloomberg News, giving us some reporting on President Trump's speech uh, this morning to the United Nations. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. 